conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping those who serve the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in ministry. And today, we are especially privileged to have with us the delightful Jen Wilkin, and we're going to be talking about theology, the role of women in the church, and uh, how pastors can best serve those needs. Uh, Jen, uh, welcome to Pastor Well. Glad you're here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You grew up in Wichita Falls. And I did. How, how did you get where you are? What's what's the, uh, the went general to school, narrative? Here? Went to school down at Texas A&M, uh, met my husband there, and we then uh, moved to Houston for 13 years, and I served on staff uh, at the church in Houston as the women's ministry director for about five years. We moved up to the Dallas area about 12 years ago, and... Um, went to a church I'd never heard of to hear a pastor I'd never hear speak, and it was Matt Chandler's church, The Village. And uh, I'm on staff there now, and I'm the director of classes and curriculum for the Village Church Institute, so adult classes. How did you get in? How did you get interested in theology? What What happened there? I have an English degree, and uh, so me too. By the way, all right, hey, yeah, say hey, and we're gainfully employed. Take that, those of you who nay say the liberal arts. Um, I had the English degree, and I had an interest in the Bible. And as I began uh, learning to read the Bible the way that I would read any book, you know, applying mm-hmm. just basic literacy tools to it, you're going to run into some theological questions. Uh, and so my husband at the time actually had started listening to R.C. Sproul on the radio, and um, he got a little interested in Reformed theology. And for my 30th birthday, he gave me Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology and that was pretty much it. I've got to tell you a story about Burkhoff. So I grew up in a pastor's home, and I trusted the Lord when I was seven. And when I was eight, my dad said, we're going to study Strong's theology. And we did for two years. And when I was 12, we did Burkhoff. Nice. And so I cut my teeth on Strong and Burkhoff. I uh, love it. And it, it, I'm grateful. You know, it wasn't he wasn't the kind of dad who said, "Sit down, we're gonna, I'm gonna yeah, make you do this." Yeah, he sounds super fun. He he was, uh, it was time with my dad. You <laughs> That's know, great. I loved time with my dad, yeah. and uh, the fact that it was over theology was really wonderful. I, I I felt a call to preach when I was like ten years old. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and told my dad that I said uh, I went to the study and I said I know I'm only ten. And I know people are going to say, he's 10. And I know they're going to say, you're just doing that because that's your dad. You're trying to please your dad. And But I said, Dad, I just really feel God wants to do this with my life. And my dad was so wise. He said, you know, Hirsch, he said, if God says something to you when you're 10, just say yes when you're 10. Just get in the habit of saying yes to God, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And, you know, the Lord will always make it clear. And great advice to a 10-year-old. And, uh, and I look back at that as really a, a defining moment in my life. So when you say Burkhoff, it it brings back a rush of wonderful memories to me. I haven't I haven't moved on from that one. I know that the cool kids today may use different systematic theology texts, but I still like, I still like the words of it. Well, uh, he, I do too. I absolutely love the way 
that he presents theology there. So uh, would you would you say that you feel called to ministering? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a, a specific call on your life to do it. I can't say that there was a moment where mm-hmm. I, I felt that specifically, but uh, and I would also say that I came into ministry by accident. I was just trying to help out at my church. Um, I saw a gap and I tried to step into it. Um, but what I do in particular, teaching the Bible specifically to women, feels like a compulsion for me. It feels like the thing that I can't not do, and um, so. Uh, I just have done it even in seasons when I had small children. I've done it, you know, in, in seasons where I had less time or more time. It, I, I joke, but it's also a little bit true that I don't have hobbies to speak of. This is, you know, while other people were um, were uh, working out, I was studying the Bible. While other people were learning a musical instrument, I was studying the Bible. It's just something that I enjoy. Well, as a pastor, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you. Because I think you you are feeling a need that has we've desperately felt for a long time that you have a really robust theology. Uh, it's not just light studies, and I don't I'm not trying to demean anything or anybody else, but I am saying I don't think you've really had a woman uh, right from a especially a complementarian perspective mm-hmm. writing. Uh, Really good and deep theology, robust theology uh, that is that really guys like me can trust. And I want you to know there's a lot of trust out there for what you do. Thank you. And Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. So, how does it? Are you? Do you sometimes feel like you're walking a tightrope because you identify yourself as complementarian? Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And. Uh, so you don't feel called to be a pastor in, right. in the sense of being the, uh, a teaching pastor in a church. Uh, you're complementarian, but you are very much theological. So how does that work out in your life? What's that look like in your ministry in the village church and then your broader ministry to churches, plural? Well, I think I have an interesting vantage point on things. I wish that I could tell you that just because um, my heart has been to teach women, um, that it was easy for me to find places to do that in the local church. It has not always been easy to to find space to do that, I think, because some of it has to do with um, the state of women's resourcing for so long that it was difficult for churches to even prioritize space for anything that looked like typical women's ministry because it it wasn't clear what the discipleship goals were of it. Um, and, and then some of it just had to do with access. When you are a woman in leadership in the church, um, it can be hard even to uh, gain access to rooms that might be typically all male just mm-hmm. because um, – uh, that is the norm, uh, particularly in complementarian churches, and sometimes the presence of women in those rooms is not even missed because it's just not even an expectation that That's they right. would be there. And so coming to the village has been um, so great because there have been open doors and there has been advocacy from those who are in leadership. And uh, I was telling uh, my my colleague just the other day, I don't know that I've ever been in a sweeter time of ministry than now because it feels like true partnership in the local church. And uh, and so because we have had that at the village, we've had sort of this opportunity to explore what it means to um, have men and women leading side by side uh, under a complementarian uh, framework. 
there are just a lot of churches that haven't even begun to think in that direction. Right. Um, because historically, they have seen themselves as if a position were to come open on staff, um, well, this guy, I want to raise him up to be a pastor. So I'm going to put a man in this role, right. even if the role wasn't necessarily something that was reserved only for a, a pastor elder. And so um, I think we have a really great opportunity at the village to just explore what does it look like when the voices of women are put in the room and and when we are um, opening doors to women to develop as theological thinkers and as uh, earnest uh, students of the word. Do, do you encounter uh, I'm asking for some self-criticism here of basically our our little quadrant of evangelicalism. Do you encounter uh, complementarian pastors who actually devalue the role of women? Do you think that uh, that's a danger? Well, I, I always say when I'm having this conversation, I do not believe there are any villains in it. I don't uh-huh. think that people wake up in the morning saying, how can we keep women out of ministry environments? I think that it is, if there is a void in, in, in that area, it is, it is a sin of omission. It is not a sin of commission. Right. And I also find that once um, men in leadership begin talking to women and bringing them into rooms, that they are so grateful that they did. It, it's, yes. it, it, it's, there, there has been a narrative that if you bring women into these conversations, if you give them leadership roles, then it's a slippery slope that Women are going to be preaching. And the thing that is just hysterical to those of us women who are in complementarian circles who hear that, we're like, I don't, I have never wanted to preach. At no time do I want to preach. What I want to see is a true picture of complementarian flourishing where both men and women are carrying forth the Great Commission. Well, you know, uh, I've grown into that in my own marriage. Mm -hmm. I'll just confess, I I grew up in a pretty strict independent baptist background uh and uh sort of saw it done badly i think Mm -hmm. uh and i had to evolve in my own thinking about now what are the biblical lines here i I know the traditional cultural lines that have been set but how do these line up with the scripture and uh, i'll just tell you my my wife one day said to me you don't treat me like the weaker vessel you treat me like the lesser vessel Mm. Oh, man, that was hard to hear. And I look, it's, again, one of those pivotal moments in my life where like, oh, wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what Christ has called me to be as a leader in my home or as a pastor. And I had to really see God's gifts in Tanya that are to be utilized. Mm-hmm. And she's there with me and for me, right? And and even in the role in the church that she fills, she's so much a part of my ministry. I can't honestly. If if the Lord took Tanya away from me, I'd have to learn how to do it all over again because I don't. I've only done it with her now for years and years. Yeah. So it would be a completely different thing, and I I really want that in my church too. Yeah. I, I I'm. I am 100% complementarian. I, I I can read the text and see what it says, and I don't need to redefine a thing. Um, and yet, uh, you see in the New Testament such a, a respect for women, and Jesus 
loving and using women. You see their role in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Imagine Apollos without Aquila and Priscilla. Right. And both of them are mentioned as explain, explaining to him the word of God more perfectly. So we need to do that. The, I believe that complementarian evangelicals need uh, well. We need you. We need people like you. We need a lot of you. And this is why I'm so grateful for what you've done. Uh, uh, your your book, In His Image, uh, Ten Ways God Calls Us to Reflect His Character, I think does a, a, an incredible job of explaining the dignity uh, of being an image bearer mm-hmm. of God. So uh, talk about that. What what is What is it that you say in that book that the church needs to hear? Well, I wrote that book and, and its predecessor, None Like Him, because one of the one of the key skills that I want to teach to those who are doing my studies is to read the Bible as a book about God, first and foremost. Um, in in the in the dominant Christian subculture right now, our habit when we approach the Bible is to read it as a book about us. Like we would we would say, Oh, the Bible is a book about God, but when we come to the text, we're just often saying what do I do with this? How can it change me? We go straight to application. We want to just glance through a text and then have it change us. Uh, and so to return people to um, to reading the text, asking, what is this saying is true about God? And then in relation to that, what should I draw from it is just a skill that I think some of us don't have. And, and I wanted to write what I found as I was trying to correct, course correct on this, was that people were willing to read the text that way, but they had an atrophied vocabulary for what was true about God. We knew um, we knew that God was merciful or, or loving or just. We didn't necessarily, we hadn't explored those ideas perhaps as, as deeply as we could, but um, but we we were less able to articulate ideas like omniscient, omnipotent, or to read the text looking for those to emerge. And so I wrote uh, None Like Him to talk about the incommunicable attributes the ones that should cause us to worship and feel right, reverent, awe, and then wrote in his image uh, to teach on the communicable attributes so that we would be able to understand that the whole purpose of our existence um, pre-fall is to image God and post-fall is to have that image restored in us as we as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, Jen, you have a, a, a special gift that you are able to write about these very deep subjects uh, that are very serious, and yet you have also certain a certain amount of playfulness uh, in both your writing and especially your speaking. You come across so very, very approachable and with good humor. Uh, do you find that it's easier to teach uh, the deep truths about God with a sense of humor? Or is that just who you are? I think well, it's I definitely come from a very funny family, and so I love humor. I love to laugh, but I think that my particular call in ministry is that I'm often having to speak hard truths. Uh, anytime you get into the scriptures, it, it, there's you know everybody loves to talk about the indicative, but the indicative is always pointing to the imperative. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of what I'm trying to do in the in the books that I'm writing and and the studies that I'm teaching is 
is show people how to connect the good news of the gospel, not just to their justification, but also to their sanctification. It is good news that we don't stay how we were when we were saved, that um, by the Spirit working in us, we are being conformed to the image of Christ, but we're we're being conformed through obedience to God's Word. And, and so that's a hard thing to call people to. Um, you have a whole lot of language out there around resting in the finished work of, of the cross, which is so important for us to understand. But we also need to understand that we run the race. And so um, I I try to speak hard truths in soft tones because that's how I want to receive those yeah. messages. And a little humor never hurts, right? Right. Well, Jesus did it, did it well. Yeah. I, I think you reflect that grace in the way you do it. Uh, so tell me about your writing habits. How do you how do you write? Oh man, I am terrible with writing. Um, I. I never thought I would be an author. I had the English degree. I knew I could write, but writing, I don't, I don't journal. I don't like if I have 10 minutes, I'm not going to sit down and write. Uh, And I am not, although when I speak, I can fill as much time as you give me. And then maybe then a little sum on top of that with writing, I am, I, I say as few words as possible to communicate as many ideas as I can. Writing is really hard for me. And so I find that I have to do a lot of reading, filling up, you know, my sort of creative wells Mm -hmm. uh, before I can produce anything. And then I need a lot of time and quiet. Do you rewrite? Do you have to rewrite a lot or does it pretty much come out the way you want to say it the first time? I would say for the most part, it comes out the way I want it to, maybe not in the order. I might reorder things. Um, but I'm not a huge. I don't go back and edit and edit and edit once I've when I once I put a manuscript together. Uh, I think much of what I have written though thus far have been things that I've taught over and over again through the years, and so that's always a little easier when you sit down to write. You're basically just um, almost uh, archiving things that you've done in other forms and saying them the way that you wish you said them every time you taught them. You work with the same editor. On, uh, do you, have you had the same editor on each book? Yes, I have. I love her. Her name is Tara Davis. And you've built a relationship with her? Yes, I have. Uh, how how um, judicious is her pen? Well, so, I, so I've done some editing myself, too, and I think there are two kinds of writers out there. There are writers who send in a giant blob of content and want someone to clean it up. Mm-hmm. And then there are writers who are like, I have just handed you the most perfect manuscript ever written. Right. I want, Don't mess with Yeah, it. I want as little uh, tweaking done to what I wrote as possible. And I'm the second kind. I'm, mm-hmm. I can tell I'm very controlling with my words when, when it comes to writing, and that's probably why it's so hard for me to actually sit down and do it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm like Coleridge. He talked about all, all the books he had uh, done, everything save written. And uh, yeah, I, I hate somebody taking my words. I did just a little review for the for the TGC website recently. Uh-huh. And, you know, they changed. Uh, I wrote could have, and they they changed it to could have. And I go, like, what? Why did you do that? Do you make them change it back? No. I, I, you know, I, I <laughs> let it go. And what's funny is that a lady in my church who teaches English at Kentucky State University. Sent me an email. She said, "I really love the review, but she's. I don't think you should have said could have. <laughs> me either. I don't either. It's my instinct exactly. So, uh, so what specifically is your role at the village? What's your 
title and what you do? What does it look like? My title is Director of Classes and Curriculum. So at the Village, about four and a half years ago, we started the Village Church Institute. And we had, up to that time, had a simple church model. We had uh, home groups, and then we had weekend services. And we also had recovery groups as well that met during the week. And we uh, started the Institute as a uh, an opportunity to do Christian education in the local church, specifically not just not just like retrofitting Sunday school, which is technically probably what my part is that I, I have taken on, but also to do seminary level instruction at the local church level. So um, I'm, I don't have a seminary degree. I'm not credentialed to be able to be over a, a program like that. But thankfully, we have JT English on our staff, who is a proud graduate of Southern. That's right. And he is over the entire institute and started um, a 32-week training program. Uh, and so there's that portion. We also have a residency uh, that has a pastoral and a professional track. And then I am responsible for the classes that are whosoever will may come. So mm-hmm. we have men's Bible study, women's Bible study, and then core classes uh, that are just teaching foundations of the faith. And um, the Bible studies are, I always like to be very clear on this, because that word Bible study can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Right. We are going through entire books of the Bible from start to finish. We alternate Old Testament, New Testament each year. Do you teach? I do. I teach the women's. Mm-hmm. A- we have two sections on Tuesday, Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening. We do the same thing twice. you going through a book of the Bible now? Well, yes, we are. We're going through Samuel right now. We're just about to wrap up Second Samuel. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, just on a practical level, teaching through Second Samuel, uh, do you do you believe in a sort of a Christological focus in it when you teach it? Like, does every lesson have to have a Christological focus, or do you have do you hang the framework in general and say, now look, I want you to l- understand it all hangs in this framework, but you don't feel the need to say it every time. Where, where are you? I am option number two. What are you? I'm option number two. Okay, we're getting along so great. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't love trying to force that onto every lesson. Well, um, it's just there's a sameness to it. Yeah. I, I, I believe in the hermeneutic in essence, but I don't feel the need to say every sermon must or every lesson right. must do X. Right, I, I totally agree. And also um, people will say, I know that people like to say the Bible is – is um, all points to Christ. Yeah, that's true. But you and can it's totality. Yeah, it, it, that's true. But also uh, to say that to hold intention, uh, the Bible is a book about God, like the triune God, right. and so we want to be sure that we're looking for um, all of all of God in that's the scriptures. Right. Oh, you and I do get along well. Uh, yeah, sometimes it sounds like we've got secret decoder rings. Yes, and you know, and here I can spot Jesus where you you can't spot him, especially where. <laughs> Where the New Testament gives no warrant, um, yeah. I just I find that problematic. There's no question it all bears witness to Jesus. It, it all ultimately right. is uh, fulfilled in him. But that's not to say, I mean, how many times can you say, now this king was a bad king, and he makes us long for the great king, yeah. and Jesus. I mean, uh, yes, that's true. Yeah. I don't deny that, but I don't feel the need to say it with every story of every king in second Samuel. Well, you end up having to give too much time in the lesson to exploring that. And then people still don't even understand how the story fits into the whole story. And what the author mm -hmm. is doing with the words. Right. And as you mentioned, the literary devices, I mean, that's, that's the real joy of Bible study. See what the author is doing. How does he unfold this story? 
Why did he say this and not that? Yeah. Why is this part of the story? Why is it told this way? Why is it so rhythmic? All of those things. Those And those are the things that actually build confidence in the learner. Um, the learner is going to be able to develop an aptitude to look for Christ in the scriptures um, because that's one, that's one tool. Uh, but there are all these other tools that they need to be gaining. They need to be looking to see right. how, um, you know, the story of David coming to the throne follows the same basic pattern as the story of Saul coming to the throne, but it's going to be tweaked a little bit so we feel the right tensions. Those are skills that many of us think were something that we just did in high school English class, um, and we don't know how to use those skills when it comes to reading the Bible. I think the emphasis on looking for Christ in every nook and cranny is just because for so long that was not talked about at all. That's I think right. it's just a corrective think, impulse. And, so know, I don't hate it. I just only here. want to give it the time that it deserves. You know, I'm 59 and I've lived long enough and I've been in this this, this world from literally my birth. Uh, Me I, too. Oh my gosh, we have so much in common. Yeah. So, you know, I've lived long enough to see the faddishness of a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's just a faddishness in preaching and church polity and all kinds of things that the pendulum sort of swings. Yeah. And it, we do. We we realize, hey, we haven't been doing something for a while, and then everybody goes that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then we're doing that too much. So uh, this is just uh, the Hegelian dialectic, I think, of life in general that we do that. But uh, I, I it don't means wanna... we're turning into cranky old people. I think. Yeah, you know, I'm really trying hard not to. <laughs> no, I don't want to be. Tony the cranky and I talk one. about. It. We say, you know, we're choosing today the kind of old people we're going to be, and I don't want to be the old guy going, "Hey, you kids, get off the grass." My stepmother always says we become more so as we get older. And I'm, so then you have one of those days where you're being cranky. And I think, oh, no, if this looks like this now, 10 years from now, what's it going to be like? Right. You know, uh, Al Mohler in a sermon uh, told a story about uh, a, a monk who had to uh, take care of two older monks. And it was his job to get up in the middle of the night to give them their medicine. And he would wake one up, and the guy would say, well, leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? And the, guy, the younger monk would say, I'm sorry, but you know, I have to wake you up to take this medicine. The guy just complained the whole time. He would leave that room and go into the quarters of the other monk and wake him up. I'm sorry to disturb you, but you know, you've got to take your medicine. And the man would say, no, it's I who am sorry to disturb you. You're having to get up to take care of me, and I'm so sorry you're having to do that. How kind of you to do that. And... Uh, and the uh, the the young monk said he realized that he was choosing then which of these two men mm. he would become, mm-hmm. and I've never forgotten that. Yeah. I'm just like I want to grow more gracious, and more thoughtful and kinder as I get older, mm-hmm. uh, and and not vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so what's your best advice for for young women who are preparing for ministry? Um, go for it. First of all, don't be afraid to. Um, to take a risk uh, and and to ask for advocacy, to ask for mentorship. Often those doors have been closed just because no one has knocked on them. Um, I don't find that on the other side of those doors of leadership are are men in leadership who who don't have time to to do those things. It's just that it perhaps has not been on their radar. And I think that increasingly it will be. I think we're beginning think to so. see this conversation play out, and I'm just so happy uh, that that's happening. Um, so women who who want to pursue, well, specifically, let me just talk to vocational ministry, but many of this would apply, many of these ideas would apply to, to any woman who's entering into ministry in the local church in any capacity. Um, you will have to probably initiate some of those conversations and be looking for 
uh, women in leadership who can help you frame what your path can or should look like, and then be looking for men in leadership who are able to open doors for you, who are able to take time uh, with you to to help you craft whatever your ministry gifting is. Uh, it's just the nature of uh, of the church that men typically have access to more resources and to more connections than women do. One of the things that we've seen as I've gone around and talked to different churches about this is that even when a church has a willingness to welcome in women onto staff positions where perhaps they hadn't before, that the initial problem they run into is that all of their networks are male. Mm-hmm. So when they go to hire, all they can think of are the are the, the men That's that right. they've been connected to, whether it's through seminary or, you know, or, or just professional ties. And so it takes more than a more than a, a normal effort to to find the right woman for the role. Um, and often when a church realizes that they want to welcome a woman in um, because they may feel um, shame about not having done so earlier, they make too quick of a decision on what woman to put into that role and they grab who's available instead of who's qualified. Mm. So what the church is really needing is uh, just as we have a category for a qualified man we need to have a qual a category for qualified woman, that's, and then we need to find insightful. her. Yeah. And so, for a woman who has that calling and wants to participate in the local church in a leadership capacity, she should also be asking herself, "How am I uh, aiming toward meeting a, a category of qualified woman? Not just willing, um, not just interested, uh, but but qualified according to the qualifications that we find in Scripture for those who are called to lead." Well, I am so grateful the Lord has raised you up. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I see you having an impact on women in my church. Uh, my wife loves to read your books, and she watches uh, your videos. My daughters-in-law love you. Uh, you're just having a tremendous impact, and it's a joy to me to see someone going as deep and as theological as you are and as you do and God using you in such a great way. So just you have my personal thanks. I Thank want you to you. know that. That's very encouraging. Uh, I've got uh, – I always like to end uh, my conversations with what I call the twinkling of an eye round. Okay. Just some quick questions, and here you go. You ready? Yeah, I think so. All right. What's your favorite vacation spot? Wimberley, Texas. We rent the same house down there every year at Thanksgiving. We take the whole family down, and we sit in the river, and we have long conversations and eat a ton of food. Well, sounds sounds delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, three authors, uh, Christian authors that have shaped you: uh, Louis Burkhoff, okay, R.C. Sproul, and Arthur Pink. Really, mm-hmm. I could tell you Pink stories. Uh, I knew people who knew him. No, yeah, I, was he as cranky as he seems? He, he was awful. <laughs> uh, my dad preached in the church at Morton's Gap uh, in Kentucky, uh, where they had memories of him and. He, he basically destroyed the, the, the church when uh, C.D. Cole was the pastor there, and he left and went to Europe for a while and had uh, had Pink pastor there, basically the interim yeah. pastor while he was gone. And Pink declared all of the membership unregenerate. Oh. He said they were none of them were saved <laughs> at Morton's Gap, Kentucky. So anyway, uh, yeah, Roy Beeman, who I studied with at Mid America Seminary, uh, mm-hmm. drove him one time for two hours somewhere for him to preach, and two hours back, he never spoke to him. Wow! In four hours in the car together, he never said a word. Wow! Well, uh, sure, <laughs> like his books. So there's my there's my, there's my pink story. I've sort of 
broken into the, the the twinkling of an eye around, but I had to tell you. That. <laughs> uh, your favorite movie? Uh, Forrest Gump. I love it too. Mm-hmm. Uh, fiction or nonfiction? Uh, probably. F- I enjoy both, but I do gravitate toward fiction. The English degree makes me. I, I like the classics. I do. Yeah. I know that's nerdy, but I do. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, sports fan. No, I don't sports. Okay. Even Texas A&M? Oh, well, I mean, I love the Aggies, yeah, but yeah. I don't necessarily follow their, their sporting activities uh, a whole lot. I got you. Uh, what kind of secular music do you like, or do you? Uh, yeah, I do. In fact, I've had a void in my Christian music um, listening. I'm not a huge consumer of music, period, I because I, I need silence to think. And so, uh, but in terms of... Um, Secular music. Oh, I really like Queen, and I really like Casey and the Sunshine Band. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh my. Journey, Boston, um, and then more recent stuff. I like the Avett Brothers and Mumford and Sons. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and John Mayer. I'm a huge John Mayer fan. Yeah, uh, Ben Rector. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Uh, what kind of car do you drive? I drive a um, Chevy Equinox. It's the I drove a minivan. I rocked the mini for about twenty years, uh-huh. and this is my my post minivan car where I wasn't quite ready to go to a sedan. Well, Jen, it has been a delight to have you on uh, the Pastor Well podcast. Thank you for being with us today, and thanks to all of you who tuned in. If you've not yet subscribed, make sure you do so on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I'll see you again next time on Pastor Well.